All right, that's baby budget. Now we can get uh, to the Bible. So open your Bibles with me to Romans as we continue our series on Romans. We're in Romans chapter 2, and I am actually going to ask you to stand. And Mr. Scott Nicholson down here is going to read Romans 2. Go ahead and stand with us in honor and respect to God's word. And Scott is going to read our passage for us uh, this morning and pray for our time. Scott? But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is in, indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who physically, uncircumci physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Lord, we thank you for your grace and endless love. We confess we are sinners, boastful, foolish, and do not act in the way you've taught us. Help us to be led by the Holy Spirit and soften our hearts. We pray that you would use us to, as teachers to help us to encourage others you place in our paths to fulfill your commandment to love one another. We ask this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Scott. You can be seated. <clears throat> Hey, the, uh, the world is messed up, is it not? Can I get an amen on that? The world is messed up. Uh, and I don't think I have to convince you of that this morning, but let me give you some illustrations, okay? Just over the last five days, have you, as you've watched the news, as you've looked online, the world is messed up. Here's just a few of those headlines from the last five days. The first one here. Maybe you heard about this in the Dallas Morning News. Six-month-old dies after babysitter couldn't reach 911. Some technical problems in Dallas with cell phones in the 911 case. Maybe you read about this. Here's another headline this week. Down south near Bryn College, pregnant Texan, Texas teen killed by train during modeling shoot. Did you hear about this? Uh, college student out on the train tracks trying to get maternity pictures and a train accident. Another one here, uh, this one hits close to home to me. Maybe you heard about the death toll uh, of this trash dump in Ethiopia. Uh, the last number I saw was 113 killed 
in this landslide of a trash dump. This hits close to home to me because in 1998, 1999, I worked in this neighborhood in Ethiopia. I used to go with teenagers uh, on the heap of the trash dump to scavenge with them, to hunt hyenas with them. Uh, These are the poorest of the poor in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. I know some of these families in this tragic disaster. Another headline this week. This is in Aleppo. Uh, this was kind of became a viral uh, picture of all that's happening of the turmoil and religious uh, factions and turmoil in Aleppo and Egypt and around the world. Next, Jose Fernandez was piloting boat at the time of fatal crash. Investigators say maybe you followed this in the sports news, but as it uh, turns out, Fernandez was either high or drunk as he was uh, driving the boat where. Um, these uh, accidents took place. Do we have one more, I think? One more. This one is sickening. Kentucky man who scalped ex-girlfriend tells judge, I don't need a lecture. Amazing. The world is messed up. And you may be sitting here, well, Ross, those are dramatic. Those are tragic. Those are global. Uh, And yes, they are. They illustrate very clearly that the world is messed up. But beyond the the dramatics of those, the tragedy of those, each person in this room, you have headlines in your own life. Uh, They may not make the internet, they may not be known by others, but you have bad news headlines in your life. Uh, Maybe they're headlines like the loss of a baby. Maybe they're headlines like cancer of someone in your family. Maybe they're headlines like divorce or unemployment. And those are not illustrations that I'm bringing up this morning. Those are examples of things that I know right here in the lives of our church family in my own life that are the headlines that you face this morning as you come and worship. The world is messed up. We don't need any more proof of that. uh, But we do need to ask the question, why is the world so messed up? Why is the world so messed up? We can all agree on that, but why is that so? I mean, is, it, is, is the, the thing, all the brokenness of the world, is it a matter of economics? Is it unequal distribution of wealth? If we could, if we could have a fair distribu- distribution of wealth, would these things not happen? Is it education? If, if uh, a guy in Kentucky were better educated or maybe had a, he had a better home life or environment or sociological factors growing up, would these things not happen? Can you fix uh, a world gone wrong by education, by environmental uh, ways, by economic redistribution of wealth? How do you fix these things? Why are, these th- why are things so messed up? Because we can all agree that they are messed up, but the question is why? Well, guess what? The, the Christian faith offers an answer for why the world is so messed up. And it's an answer that Blaise Pascal says first offends our reason because it calls us sinners but if accepted, makes sense of all that we experience in the world. And the answer that the Bible gives us is the answer of sin. We're sinners. That the Bible says that we don't have just a, a problem with education or, or sociological factors or economic disparity, but we have a problem in our heart. We have a heart disease. We have a, a cancer of sin in, in every heart, and that's why these things happen. And, and I propose this morning that the Christian answer is actually a really good answer. Because it gives us a reason, and it doesn't discount education, it doesn't discount economics and all those things, 
But it says beyond, underneath all those things, in every heart there is this condition called sin. And it is what has put the world apart. The problem is sin, and the answer is a Savior, and that Savior has come in Jesus Christ. As Paul begins, as he writes this wonderful letter to the church in Rome, this, uh, the book of Romans, he begins the first three chapter talking, talking about this idea of sin, about this sickness that we have. And we've been talking about it for several weeks now, and it started back in chapter 1, verses 18. If you were here that week, if you look back <clears throat> excuse me, in chapter 1, you see beginning in verse 24 that he lists all these sins. And there were sins like sexual perversion, envy, murder, strife, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, and even throws in there disobedient to parents. Don't you love that one that he throws that right in there? Disobedient to parents, envy, murder, strife, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And Paul, in these first three chapters of Romans, is just pounding away that there's a problem, and that problem is sin. But here's the deal. Sin is multifaceted. It has many different faces, sin does. And in fact, I would guess this morning that if, if, you just, if I asked you to describe sin or think about sin, the first thing that would come to your mind when you hear the word sin is Romans chapter 1, those types of things. When you think about sin, my guess is that you think about Romans chapter 1. But guess what? There are many different faces of sin. And as he begins chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul, ta- Paul tells us about a different kind of sin. And it's not the sin of unrighteousness. It's the sin of self-righteousness. It's not so much the blatant things of Romans chapter 1, those things that are easily observable in Romans chapter 1, but it's those things that are sneakier and more deceitful, and that's the sin of Romans 2 and 3. It's the sin of self-righteousness. You know, perhaps you've heard before that uh, there's only one way to stand up straight. You stand up straight one way, but guess what? There are multiple ways to fall down. You can fall down to the front, to the back, to the side. There are a myriad of ways to fall down, fall down. There's only one way to stand up. But guess what? You can fall in many different ways. Well, guess what? There are many different ways to sin. But there's only one Savior. And you can sin through unrighteousness or you can sin through self-righteousness. And that is the sin that Paul's dealing with in our passage here today. So look uh, along with me, uh, Romans chapter 2, Scott already read it for us, but here's kind of here's where we're going. Three main headings this morning. We're going to see uh, some exposition of the text, then some illustration, and then thirdly, some application. Okay, that's where we're going. Exposition, illustration, and application. Got it? So first of all, the uh, exposition. Again, I said, most of us, and even in the first century, when you think about sin, you think about Romans 1. It's all those nasty external things, right? But what he begins to tell us here is this sin uh, that's, that's, that's more deceitful. And it's a sin in our heart of self-righteousness. You may have left a sermon a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 1 and felt pretty good about yourself. Hey, I'm, I'm not that kind of sinner. Well, guess what? Now Paul comes after us. Now Paul comes after the good religious people the morally upright people, and puts us all face down, or as he'll say next week in our passage, mouths shut. 
So there weren't just immoral people in the first century, and there aren't just immoral people today in, in, in our church and in our culture. There's also, also morally upright people. In fact, in the first century, there were, there were Greek philosophers that were morally upstanding. One of them was a guy named Seneca. And one commentator named F.F. F. Bruce says, he, he describes how Seneca might have received Romans chapter 1 from Paul because he's a good upstanding philosopher. So F.F. Uh, F. Bruce writes this, Seneca, this great moral philosopher, might have listened to Paul's indictment and said, yes, that is perfectly true of the great masses of mankind, and I concur with the judgment which you pass on them. But there are others, of course, like myself, who deplore these tendencies as much as you do. He goes on to say, not only did Seneca exalt the great moral virtues, he exposed hypocrisy. He preached the equality of all human beings. He acknowledged the pervasive character of evil. He practiced and inculcated daily self-examination. He ridiculed vulgar idolatry. He assumed the role of a moral guide. In other words, he's a good guy. He's a religious person. He's an upright example. And so Paul, knowing that that would be our objection, knowing that would be the objection of many in the first century, goes on and talks about this different kind of sin, the sin of self-righteousness. So quickly here uh, in verses 17 through 24, the passage kind of breaks up nicely. Uh, Verses 17 through 24, we see their claims, the claims of self-righteous people, the claims of the Jews of that day who were uh, upright people. And in verses 25 through 29, we see their circumcision. Yeah, we're going to get to talk about circumcision today in church. You excited about that? Okay, so uh, first paragraph, their claims. Second paragraph, their circumcision, okay? At the beginning of uh, chapter 2, verse 1, we saw that Paul's audience was, uh, oh man, it was kind of this objector that might have been Gentile, might have been Jewish, but he says in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, you have no excuse, oh man, this person that was hypocritical. But as we get to verse 17, the audience seems to, to shift to the Jewish person, to the, the one that had this religious education. And so he says in, in uh, verse 17, you, if you call yourself a Jew. So he's talking about these Jewish people that had all this tradition and all this religious upbringing and this religious um, tradition. And look at the verbs as he describes their claims here. Look at the strong verbs. I have them underlined in my, uh, in my Bible here. But he says, if you call yourself a Jew. Second verb, if you rely on the law. And thirdly, and you boast in God. Do you, do you see what the verbs are telling us there? This person is, is, is confident. And they're not confident in God as much as they're confident in their tradition and their religiosity. You call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law, you boast in God, you say you know his will, you know the Bible. That's essentially what he's saying in today's terminology to a Christian audience. You, you claim to know the Bible. You, you claim to uh, understand and to preach also that Romans 1 is bad. You, you know the law. You approve what is excellent. You're instructed from the law. You are sure that you yourself are a guide, a, a light to the to those in darkness, and an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of others, and yet you fall short yourself. You have all this confidence about what uh, you do and what you bring to the table and, and your history, and yet you're a hypocrite because you have these internal sins, you have this internal self-righteousness uh, that you think makes you better than the people of Romans chapter 1. And guess what? All are guilty. 
That's going to be his conclusion. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, many of you have memorized that verse. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we sin in a multitude of different ways. So he's taking to task, if you will, these uh, religiously faithful people. One commentator named James Dunn says this, Paul's words are, are pricking of the balloon of Jewish pride and presumption. He's just pew, popping the balloon of their religious pride. You know, this can happen uh, today. This happens today uh, in our hearts, doesn't it? Hey, I've, I've grown up in a good family. Hey, I've, I've gone to church all my life. I was baptized as an infant. I, I'm always at church. I know the Bible. I know the answers. And it can become, or it can be, all about ritual, all about tradition, all about your religiosity, rather than the covenant that God has made with you. This exact same thing that the Jews were doing could, can be said of, of many of us. You see, he goes on as, as, a, as an example in the next verses. He talks about their circumcision, right? So look again at uh, verses 29 or 25 through 29 again. He says, if for circumcision uh, indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. And then verses 28 and 29, he talks about the internal aspect of knowing God. He says it's not about these external things, but it's about what God does in your heart. Verses 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So what's going on here? The Jews had been given the, the covenants of God. They had been brought out of slavery in Egypt. They had been given the Ten Commandments and, and all this uh, uh, guidance from God to be the people of God. And what happened is they began to take pride in their tradition, they began to take pride in the rules and in this ritual of circumcision to say, hey, if I come from this tribe, if I come from this tradition, I'm okay. God's wrath will not come upon me. I'm circumcised. And again, one commentator, John Stott, says this about circumcision. He says, circumcision was a God-given sign and seal of his covenant with them, but it was not a magical ceremony or charm. It did not provide them with the permanent insurance cover against the wrath of God. Yet the Jews had an almost superstitious confidence in the saving power of their circumcision. Rabbinic epigrams expressed it. For example, circumcised men do not descend into Gehenna, which was death or hell. Another epigram, circumcision will deliver Israel from Gehenna. And so what's happening here? There's, there's this confidence again in my tradition in my religious works versus a confidence in the living God who has made his covenant with me. It becomes about ritual and religiosity versus a relationship of truly knowing God. And we can do the same thing today. We do the same thing today. I've been baptized. 
When I was younger, I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. I grew up in the South, in America, where everyone's a Christian. I mean, we're, we're all Christians. This is a Christian nation. So I'm good. I've been baptized. And Paul's point is that the external without the internal reality is a sham. And it's not true faith. It's not true religion. It's merely religiosity. And so I fear for us this morning that we've made things about the external, that we may have a false self-confidence because you're a good person, because you're here this morning in church, because you've always been in church and you've never done those bad things of Romans 1, and yet your confidence is not in God. Your confidence is in yourself. What you've done, what I've done, hey, I'm a good guy. This happens in our traditions too, right? Not just personally, but in our traditions. Hey, I, I grew up in the, in the church of Christ. We, we take baptism seriously. Hey, I, I grew up Catholic, and we have this rich tradition and history, and we're related all the way back to Peter, so we're the ones that really have it right. Hey, I'm Presbyterian. We're, we're, we're right in lockstep with the reformers of the 16th century. We, we understand the sovereignty of God and the tradition of the Reformation. We, we've got it down. And so we began to have pride in our denomination or our church or our religious background. Or, hey, guess what? I'm, I'm none of those. I grew up in a Bible church. And we're not Baptists, and we're not Church of Christ, and we're not Catholic. We've actually overcome all those things. We're better than all you people. Because <laughs> we don't have that baggage. And you see the subtlety of self-righteousness. And self-righteousness, folks, brothers and sisters, self-righteousness is a respecter of no person, of no tradition, of no group. All of us can fall into self-righteousness, conservative, liberal, traditional, edgy, relevant. We can look down our nose at other people and prop ourselves up with a sense of self-righteousness that is not based upon Christ, but is really based upon ourselves. We do it all the time. And that type of self-righteousness falsely believes that the external, that knowledge and the external are what really matters. And it's not. Paul will go on in the book of Galatians, chapter 5 or 6, and he talks about circumcision there. And he says what matters is not circumcision or uncircumcision, but faith working through love. Faith working through love. Why does Paul spend chapter 1, 18 to 32 on the nasty external sins? but then spend basically all of chapter 2 and 3 talking about the sin of self-righteousness. Why does, by comparison, he spend so little time on unrighteousness, but so much time and space on self-righteousness? Because unrighteousness in chapter 1, I mean, it's easy to sniff out, right? I mean, you've either committed adultery or you haven't. But he takes two chapters to expose self-righteousness because it, is, because it is sneaky sin. 
And you don't know. Sometimes you, you're deceiving yourself. You don't know if you've crossed the line from faith to self-righteousness. A great way I heard it described one time is, um, sorry for the vivid picture here, but uh, the sin of self-righteousness is like bad breath. You're the last one to know. I mean, you're offending everyone in your path except yourself. Again, sorry for the blunt illustration. Self-righteousness is sneaky, and that's why Paul spends two chapters saying, watch out for this, because you, you might just be a religious person. You might just have religiosity and not faith. And again, self-righteousness, no respecter of persons, no respecters of groups. And it's sneaky because you can feel confident as a self-righteous person. You can look down on all the sins of everyone else until somebody comes along or some group comes along and you feel like, oh gosh, I got to climb the ladder one more. So you're never confident in God. You're always struggling. You're always doubting your salvation. You can't have assurance because ultimately it's based upon you. So somebody else comes along, some other group comes along and is like, well, maybe I got to do more here. Maybe I'm in the wrong group. I love uh, many different ages of teachers around here in our kids' classes. I heard this story a couple weeks ago, uh, but we have two gyms serving back in our elementary class right now. We have Jim Waldron and we have Jim Hessen. A couple weeks ago, one of the little boys in the, in the elementary class uh, is teasing his teachers, shame on him, and uh, calls Jim Waldron and he says, Jim, you're old Jim. And Jim Hessen's thinking. <laughs> and then the kid turns and goes, and you're older Jim. <laughs> Hessen was feeling pretty good until he found out, no, I'm actually the older Jim, not the old Jim. You know, you can feel good about yourself until compared to somebody else or to, uh, until you see some other standard that you haven't met yet or some other group that seems to have it down better than you. And then your self-righteousness is got to come back up. We can do it as those of us that have raised in the church. Man, man, I'm, I'm, I've done all this. Those people out there, man, they wasted their life. They rebelled, they did, and they made all the wrong choices at, at teenagers, as teenagers. Well, guess what? Those people... They can have self-righteousness too. Look, all those, all those kids that grew up in church, those little goody two-shoes, they don't really understand the real world. They don't really understand sin. They haven't been delivered from what I've been. And you see what's happening there? The religious person is looking down on the rebellious person, and the rebellious person is looking down on the religious person. There's those of us that don't drink alcohol. Now, our teetotalers, I can look down on the people that drink alcohol. I can't believe they would be like the world. I can't believe they would drink beer. Wow, they really need to get right with God. It's unbelievable. What are the, what are the ones drinking alcohol doing? Those teetotalers. <laughs> you know, they're so hung up in rules and, you know, just kind of obeying God. They haven't realized their freedom in Christ, that this is okay, that we can, you know, enjoy a good beverage. The teetotalers look down on the drinkers, and the drinkers look down on the teetotalers. Self-righteousness, a respecter of no one. All the people that like the hymns and grew up in the traditional churches, man, we have those good, solid hymns with all that good theology, and we wouldn't wear jeans or shorts to church like those disrespectful young people. And what do all the edgy, relevant churches say? 
Ah, all those old fogies with hymnals and, you know, making us thinking it's all about dressing up for church. Ah, they're so crotchety and stuck back in their ways. They're never going to reach the world because they're so stuck back in the 1950s. So you can be traditional and look down at the edgy people, and you can be edgy and look down at the traditional people. Hey, we're a big church. God must really be blessing us. God must really be using us because we're a big church, man. We're knocking the doors off, man. We're making a difference. Those uh, small church, they must not really be faithful. They must not really have it together about how to reach people. What do the small church people do? Hey, we're a small church. We haven't sold out to the culture. We're not just watering down the gospel like all these big churches. We're just trying to get people in the door and entertain them, Right? So the big church look down on the small church, the small church look down on the big church, and what do they both have in common? A sense of self-righteousness. And what does Jesus come to us and say? Neither unrighteousness nor self-righteousness, but alien righteousness. What's alien righteousness? An alien righteousness is the righteousness that God gives us, foreign to us, but credits to our account through the only righteous one that ever walked this earth, Jesus Christ neither unrighteous nor self-righteous, but alien, foreign righteousness. That's what we need. It's the only kind of righteousness that will bring us salvation and let us stand before a holy, righteous God at judgment. That's it. But I fear that even among us, we would mistake religiosity for faith that we would mistake the externals for true salvation and faith. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, here's the application, okay? The application is twofold. Application number one is look at your heart. Look at your heart. Not just look at your actions, okay? But look at your heart. Is there murder in your heart? Is there envy in your heart? So maybe you haven't wrecked your marriage through adultery. Good for you. Praise God. But do you know that you can erode your marriage through lust? Praise God. You haven't murdered anyone. You haven't beat your kids, but do you have anger in your heart? Do you have envy for your neighbors? Are you spiteful toward others? Guilty, guilty, guilty. Look at your heart. Because I think if we look at our heart and not just what we do on Sundays, not just what we've grown up with, we'll, we'll realize we may not have the unrighteousness of some people, but we've got an unrighteousness of a different style, that we fall in a different way. And both, both keep us from God. Look at your heart. But the good news is this. Don't just look at your heart or you will be laid flat, depressed, and lost. Look at your heart and then look to the cross. Look at your heart, and then look to the cross, because what happens when you look to the cross? 
When you look to the cross, you see that your unrighteousness is so bad that it cost Jesus his life. But you also see that your self-righteousness is so poor, is so pathetic, that it could never measure up. So Jesus, the Son of God, had to shed his blood for your self-righteousness as well as your unrighteousness. When you look at the cross, unrighteousness is exposed. But when you look at the Christ, when, when you look at the cross, self-righteousness is outed. If you could get to God by your religious works, then Jesus wouldn't have had to go to the cross. But they could never get us there. So Jesus went to the cross. And that means our sin is so bad, it requires the blood of God. But his love for us is so great that he went to the cross in love for unrighteous and self-righteous sinners. So look at your heart and then look to the cross where we see sin and guilt, but not just sin and guilt, our Savior who paid for every sin, righteous and unrighteousness. Will you bow your heads with me? As the band comes forward, I want to give us a moment to just reflect, to search our hearts, but don't get stuck on your heart, but search your heart. Confess your unrighteousness. Confess your self-righteousness to God right now. Do business with the Lord. And then as I said, look to the cross, receive the righteousness of Jesus credited to your account. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want you to just receive two final scriptures from Paul. Romans chapter four, he's gonna, we'll get there soon. Romans chapter four, verse five, he's gonna write this. He says, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's good news. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21, Paul says a similar thing there. He says to him, excuse me, to him who knew no sin, he became sin, that in him we might become the righteousness To him who knew no sin, he made sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father God, we thank you for the amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Father, we come to you as sinners and we cling to the cross of Jesus counted our victory, counted our hope, counted our salvation and nothing else, nothing other, nothing in addition but Jesus and his blood. It's in his beautiful name we pray.